According to marketing firm HubSpot, millennials, that's the generation of people born between 1980 and 2000, are excessively brand aware. In fact, 62% of them tend to stick with one brand compared to 54% of the population at large. These brand loyalists feel a sense of belonging and even a shared consciousness with others loyal to the brand. And if it sounds cult-like, all the better from the brand's perspective. Harley-Davidson, Trader Joe's, Apple, they've all achieved cult status with legions of devoted, some might even say fanatical followers. And there are lesser-known brands, uh, Dollar Shave Club, LaCroix, Moleskin, that have tapped the same fervor. Customers of cult brands want others to know of their association because it makes them look smart or hip or healthy. Achieving cult brand status is the holy grail for consumer marketers. So should a credit card brand even dare to dream? Today we'll hear from Professor Shelley Santana about her case entitled Chase Sapphire, Creating a Millennial Cult Brand. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Shelley Santana is an expert in consumer behavior, particularly in relation to spending and credit. Before embarking on her academic career, she was a marketing executive at American Express. Thanks for joining us today. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure uh, for our listeners, I am holding up my very own Chase Sapphire credit card. You're my witness. Yes, you are. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today is mm -hmm. the appeal of the of the physical card itself. So I thought this was great. Obviously, I think about it both as a consumer and a user of the product, but also it gave me a much more interesting look inside the development of a credit card brand, which I'd never really given a lot of thought to. So I think our listeners will really enjoy this. Um, so let me ask you to start just by telling us Who's the protagonist, or in this case, the protagonists, and what's on their mind? So there are two protagonists in the case, Pam Cotaspati, who's actually an HBS alum. She's president of Chase Branded Cards, and Eileen Sarah, who is a senior advisor to Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, and she is also the former CEO of Chase Card Services. And the case begins in July 2017, and they are reflecting back on the prior year after the launch of the Chase Sapphire Reserve card. In August of 2016, they launched this new card. Um, it was targeted at millennials. It had an astonishing 100,000 point offer in terms of uh, new card holders being That's awarded 100,000 points. Yes, it was uh, unprecedented in the market and everyone just sort of stopped. The entire market froze when this offer came out. And they actually reached their full year acquisition target within the first two weeks of the card being available. Wow. They ran out of the special metal alloy that makes the card feel so special. So it's got a piece of metal in between the two pieces of molded plastic, so it's got a little bit of heft to it. They ran out of that. Uh, millennials were posting YouTube videos of themselves unboxing this credit card that they received in the mail. Um, it really just created such a frenzy in the marketplace that is kind of unheard of with credit cards in general, but yeah. credit cards uh, amongst millennials was something that was truly, truly unprecedented. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about millennials. They come up all the time in this podcast, and uh, I have three of my own at home, so I can relate to millennials somewhat. <laughs> uh, I would assume that maybe part of what drove you to write this case is your experience in this industry, but how did you hear about it, and, and what made you pursue it? 
Yeah. Um, as you as you noted, I used to work for American Express. So credit cards in the credit card industry is just inherently interesting to me. And to see this new uh, product take the market by storm the way it did was just fascinating. The second thing was that it truly was across all products. It was one of the hottest product launches in 2016. And again, it's a boring credit card. Yeah. And it's one of the hottest products of the year. There was a cover story on Bloomberg Business Week about how this uh, card was the must-have product for millennials, which, again, millennials um, were not big credit card users historically. So to even bring millennials into the franchise and to bring them in with such passion and devotion was uh, just an amazing, amazing accomplishment to me. And so I really wanted to really get into how this all came about and how these women sort of really built this franchise. That's great. Can you um, describe, for those of us who don't know, uh, J.P. Morgan's a huge financial services company. How important is the credit card piece of that portfolio? The credit card business historically was pretty small at Chase, so it is a large organization. What they're probably best known for is their investment banking business. Um, But the credit cards is part of the community and consumer banking business, which includes the 5,200 retail branches um, that you see when you're walking down the street. Historically, the credit cards had been very fragmented. There was a lot of co-brands in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And what Jamie Dimon and Gordon Smith and Pam and Eileen uh, came up with was a strategy in order to have a proprietary branded presence in this marketplace. They wanted something that said Chase that lived up to the overall J.P. Morgan Chase brand um, and really could resonate with consumers in a consumer way. Mm -hmm. And so this was uh, part of a much larger strategy. This is part of what I love about the story. It's not just about a credit card. It's not just about a product launch, but it's about creating a brand. And what is the strategy behind creating a brand and really making a branded presence in the marketplace. Yeah, and entering a pretty competitive uh, landscape. So who else, you know, sits in this uh, landscape of major credit cards? In terms of the issuers, there are six major issuers mm-hmm. in the credit card space. They include American Express, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Capital One, and Discover. And these six issuers alone account for about 80% of all credit card sales. So it's a large industry, but it's concentrated amongst these six. The luxury credit card market was historically really dominated by American Express. That was a domain that Amex, a segment that Amex had really sort of fenced off for itself. And they were the only ones who were offering a credit card specifically targeted for the traveler, Mm. affluent, high credit score, high earning, high spending type of customer. And the rest of the issuers are really um, playing in the much larger space of mass credit cards. Around mid-2000s, Citi and J.P. Morgan Chase in particular made it a concerted effort to move up market into the more premium space. And that's when really sort of this competition at the high end of the market began to intensify. Yeah. You know, we've we've done podcasts here on, on mobile wallet technology and applications. And one of the things I thought about as I read this case was, are credit cards like passe already? Is, you know, is the mobile wallet going to take over this space? But the statistics that you provide in the case would seem to indicate otherwise. Yeah. So um, I also have a case on Apple Pay. And mobile wallets, although they're large and growing, they're still a very small part of the overall market here in the U.S., which is just sort of interesting in and of itself. 
but it is growing exponentially. And it's something that credit card issuers really do worry about. But there are two types of sort of digital payments that concern credit card issuers and for slightly different reasons. So one is like if you think about your desktop, your Amazon, et cetera, where you put your credit card in and they sort of they, they refer to it as set it and forget it. Mm-hmm. Right. The importance of being top of wallet in that particular environment is so vital, right? Because people don't tend to revisit it. Um, and then there's the other that's more of the mobile wallet, the digital pay, the Apple Pays, et cetera where the actual image of the card comes up when you're making your payment. And so that branded experience is still really important, but credit card companies spend an enormous amount of money on just the physical look and feel of the card, Mm -hmm. the color of the card, the weight of the card, et cetera. And that's very difficult to have that transfer into a digital environment. So it is something that they definitely have an eye on. Yeah, and in this case, they clearly spent a lot of time and uh, attention on the physical assets of the Chase Sapphire card. Yeah, that weight, just, you know, the weight of the card is so unique and it's so special and it's such a conversation piece. How to get that kind of multi-sensory experience into a digital environment, I think, is a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how they segmented the market as they thought about, you know, who they were going to go after. And, you know, they they landed on millennials, um, which I guess for them was thinking we're not competing head-to-head with American Express then if we go to the millennials because they're not using that card. And it didn't occur to me, clearly I am not hip. Um, (laughs) Well, Chase would say that it's not just for millennials. It's also the millennial-minded. Ah, there we go. I like that. I like that. Uh, But I've I've been a member of American Express, too, for many, many years. And I do remember when I got that card thinking, well, this is kind of cool. You know, I feel like I've sort of arrived. And you allude to that in the case. Yeah, they, they really are targeting somewhat different audiences. There's certainly some overlap. But one of the things that Chase will say is, you know, we're not trying to replicate or displace American Express. The things that American Express are good at, they're very, very good at, and it would take a long time and a lot of money for us to try and replicate that. Um, but there are certain things that we're very, very good at and that we can sort of pivot and really sort of put our stake in the ground with respect to the credit card market and these really attractive customers. Mm-hmm. So while they're both targeting high-spending, good credit score-type people and, and heavy travelers, the type of travelers, the type of benefits, the type of perks um, are very different across the two cards. And you can really see how that sort of plays out. And one of the classic examples is there's what they call point accelerators, where you get more than one point for a dollar spend in certain categories of spend. That's very common in credit cards. Um, at American Express, one of the big categories is groceries, right? Mm-hmm. You get double points for groceries. Millennials do not shop at grocery stores the way people in my age bracket more mine. Um, <laughs> shop at grocery stores, right? It's much more about Grubhub, et cetera. So being able to define dining in a more flexible way, right? To be able to define travel in a more flexible way. Travel is not just an airline ticket or a train ticket or et cetera. It could be an Uber. It could be a Lyft. It could be, you know, anything that you sort of want it to be. So trying to really be flexible and open-minded and design a card that really is from the bottom up about this millennial lifestyle, Mm. I think was central to the success of the reserve credit card. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that millennials uh, aren't that comfortable with the notion of of credit. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is a a segment of, of consumers who 
really grew up in the shadow of the Great Recession. Hmm. And when when credit was really sort of crippling a lot of people in the United States. And so in the wake of that, a lot of people reverted back to using debit cards. And a lot of millennials grew up using debit cards as opposed to credit cards in order to avoid getting in over their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and there really wasn't a compelling product out there specifically for them. So Chase, to their credit, they recognize that there is this segment of consumers that's high spending, they travel, they're adventurous. And we think we can put a product together that's a credit product, not a debit product, that meets their needs and that they would be willing to take a chance on us and see that we are um, a product that is uniquely suited for them. Yeah, and they were, they were right. Um, yeah. and, and apparently rewards programs really do work. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, how imp- in the industry, I don't even know how long rewards programs have been around. I guess I, I never really thought that much about it, but, but uh, they give an awful lot of thought to not just the program, but how they're going to break it out and how they're going to target people based on the rewards that they offer. Yeah, so um, rewards are incredibly, incredibly important in the credit card industry. And if you think about rewards broadly, that could be something like cashback products, right? Or it could be what the industry would call proprietary currency products, right? Whether it's points or miles or something like that. Um, So when you take those two broad groups together, that is one of the primary factors that consumers look at when they're trying to select a credit card. That said, the person who's attracted to a cashback card is a very different profile of consumer than a person who's going to go for more of a proprietary points reward-based card. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, um, I think the, the term that you use in the case is churners. Mm-hmm. That's an industry term, I guess, for people who are really good at flipping from one card to the next? Yeah, so there's there's this um, inherent risk in that you put out a, a really rich offer, like 100,000 points, and a lot of these, these acquisition offers are fairly standard. You get X amount of points if you spend Y amount of dollars in a particular period of time. The intention is to get people to use their card quickly, right? And then that becomes habitual, and then you it just becomes part of your daily routine. The risk is that people will recognize that they can spend up to the exact amount, mm-hmm. uh, collect their reward, and then sort of put their credit card in the drawer. And so then what happens is when you have these really rich offers, like Chase put out 100,000 points, you know, they front-loaded a lot of the expense for this product, yeah. right? And so in order for that investment to pay back, you need customers to stay longer than the time required in order to earn the reward. And that's kind of the tricky balance in trying to determine how do we make this portfolio profitable in the long run, which is one of the primary questions that's on the table for the protagonists in the case. Yeah, and the other question that surfaces in the case is, how do you follow that up? Like, Mm -hmm. what's next? Uh, And you start to get into that a little bit in the case, too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things that is a defining characteristic of the reserve card was this 100,000-point offer. And it just took the entire industry by storm, like I said. But it was an introductory offer, A. So then the offer was dropped down to 50,000 points, which was planned. And then the second thing was, once you earned those points, that was a one-time opportunity. So now, it's a year later, those 100,000 points could easily cover the annual fee for the credit card, which was $450. A year later, that annual fee is going to start popping up on people's credit card statements going forward. That's not a small fee. That's not a small fee. And um, so now one of the other questions on the table for Pam and Eileen is, does this product stand up on its own in the absence of this sort of mind-blowing 
new customer acquisition offer. And the truth is that it really does. Even when you take that away or you strip that down to 50,000 points, it actually gave them the room to talk about all the other features and benefits on this card that are really great and truly targeted at their design target, the millennial traveling consumer. Yeah. Now, I was really surprised to read. I mean, you hear about, you know, Harley Davidson people tattooing the brand on their arm and that kind of thing. I was amazed at uh, some of the exhibits and and the things that people were doing with their credit card. Yes. um, I think one of my favorite stories was the woman who was initially uh, declined uh, as a customer for Chase, and she dressed up as a Chase Sapphire card for Halloween in this social media-fueled attempt to get their attention so that they would approve her for the card. Did she get one? Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> That's a B case. Yes. Coming, coming up next. So you've di- you've discussed this in class uh, yeah. with MBA students. Have you also done it with executives? Because I'm curious to see if the millennials come at it differently than the older folks. Uh, so we have not discussed it. It's a brand new case. It was just completed this past October. And so we did discuss it with the MBAs and they loved it. Mm-hmm. There was so much energy and enthusiasm in the classroom. We had the good fortune of having Pam and Eileen in the classroom with right. us. And, and they just did a terrific job talking through really honestly, like here are the challenges, here are the pros and cons. The economics of this business are such that you know, we're in this for the long run, and we book this acquisition cost in the short run, and then we need to sort of recover it in the long run. And so we need to make sure that we have a compelling offer, a compelling reason for you to take your card out and use this card over any other card in your wallet each and every time you have the opportunity to purchase something. The vast, vast, vast majority of our students had the card, so that was really, really? fun. Yes. And um, we all took a picture with their Chase Sapphire cards and with Pam and Eileen at the end of the case. I think the core lesson here is not just about new product development and how you use traditional retention tools as an acquisition tool, as an example, but also really understanding your customer. At the end of the day, all of marketing is rooted in the customer and understanding who your customer is. And one of the big lessons, I think, from this case is Chase really took the time to understand the lifestyle of their target audience, which is millennials, what mattered to them. Why weren't they using competitive products or why? what did they like about competitive products and built this product from the ground up? They didn't say, you know what, millennials are younger versions of our existing customers. Mm-hmm. They said, this is a completely different customer and we need to design something completely different that's just for them. And I think that is a lesson that is generalizable. I think it is. I think it's a great lesson for any marketer who might be listening who's targeting this millennial audience because they are different. They are. They really are. Their value systems are different. Their lifestyle is different. Their needs and wants, et cetera, are different. And there's still wisdom. You know, people always say, like, is traditional marketing dead? You know, everything is going digital. The old rule of marketing are dead. And I always tell my students, the core principles of marketing are the core principles of marketing. And understanding your customer is a notion that is not dead. Yeah, it's a great lesson, Shelley. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode of Cold Call, please subscribe on iTunes for more cases like this one. And while you're there, please write a review. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call.